Anybody felt the urge to dance in church today? Amen. <laughs> Woo! Man, like David before the ark, right? Amen. If you have your Bible, turn to uh, Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. I don't know if y'all know this or not today, but my wife is, uh, is actually a first responder back there. How about that, baby? I'm starting to feel a little woozy, you know. <laughs> starting to feel a little woozy. Did y'all take that training in high school? Who took CPR training in high school? Oh, come on now. And what they call the doll? Recessant Andy. But we don't call her Recessant Angie today, right? Oh, come on now. Y'all are supposed to laugh a lot harder than that. I mean, I envision that as an eruption of laughter in the congregation and got nothing. Recessant Angie. Ain't happening. Let's move on. Alright, thank you. Though. For those of you that supported me, thank you very much for that. Luke chapter 8. Oh my goodness. This is the parable of the sower, and this is, without a doubt, my favorite, one of my favorite parts of the scripture. And let me tell you why it's one of my favorite parts of the scripture. <clears throat> uh, I went through, my wife and I and my family went through a really, really, really difficult time uh, back in 2009. And I had to leave the church I was pastoring at the time. Uh, some of you have told, have told the story in depth. If you ever want to know it, just come talk to me. I just trying to use a lot of pulpit time for it. But it was a very difficult time. And, and from that place, uh, our home church uh, reached out a, a helping hand and helped us with a position uh, for about a year. And I was called the Minister of Evangelism for my home church for about a year. And so when I did that, um, it was a part-time position. And my job was to try to seek different ways of getting our home church involved in evangelism. And one of the things I did was I went to the convention and I tried to find all of the, the helps on evangelism I could. And surprisingly, um, there were things there, but I just didn't, I, I just didn't, I don't know what term to use, I didn't like what they provided me. And so I went to the scripture and I began to pray. And I was like, Lord, this is where I am for whatever reason right now. This is where you have me. So help me to guide me in this and help me find something that I can use to equip the churches that you have allowed me to uh, through, the, through this position with First Baptist Greenville and through the Association of Churches that, that, I can, that I can help our churches around here. And I prayed and I prayed and I just started reading the scripture. And I, I had read the parable of the sower before, but, but not, not in the context in which I was at that time, which was a minister of evangelism, and then realizing the deficiency of, of theological tools, so to speak, that were out there, and being forced to kind of be led by God to find them on my own, I was led straight to God, I felt like, believe to this day that the Spirit led me to this parable of the sower. And so I read it. And it just was one of those moments. You ever had one of those moments when just, just something in the scripture was crystal clear for you for the first time that maybe hadn't been? That was one of those moments for me. And then I realized, through studying the New Testament, I realized that this parable was not only in Matthew. Matthew's version is the most, is the most complete and the most full. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have somewhat of a phrase or two or some type of teaching that is in that realm. And then I realized at the end of Acts that Paul spoke it as well at the end of Acts. And then it made me realize 
that in all the time that I searched and talked to people about evangelism, do you know how many people pointed me to the parable of the Sower? Is that me?
from, from the sinful woman forward, he's beginning to show us examples of what good soul looks like. And so we see that in these women. We see it in the sinful woman in, in Luke chapter 7. And then we see it at the beginning of Luke chapter 8. All of these women following Jesus and the apostles in their entourage. Okay? And so now he gives us the parable of the sower. And he starts out and he basically says the sower goes out to sow. And he sows on a hard soul. And what happens with the hard soul? The seed does not come into the ground. And so it swoops around and eats the seed. The birds do, okay? The next one is sown on rocky ground. Now, now don't get this confused because I did forever. Rocky ground does not mean it's gravelly soul, okay? Like, like, like it's in my yard or in your yard, maybe where you dig up a little bit, there's a rock or two that's separated or some gravel that's mixed in with that. That's not what he's talking about. When he says rocky ground, what he means is, is that to the naked eye, you can't see it. But just below the surface, maybe four or five, six inches, there's this whole shelf of rock. This long, huge, like, like bed of solid rock that is impenetrable by the roots that germinate. Okay? And then after that, it talks about, you know, you plant the seed in that, it springs up suddenly, but when the sun comes out, what happens to it? It withers because it has no root. And then finally, the seed is sown among thorns. And when it's sown among thorns, again, you don't see the, the, the thorns that are there. So you sow the seed not realizing the thorns are there. But once the, the, once the, the, the wheat, will say, wheat germinates and the thorns begin to grow, the root system begins to compete with each other. And what happens is, is that over time, the thorns, which grow faster, thicker, and stronger, overtake the wheat plant and choke it and eventually kill it. Right? And then finally he says, some seed is sown in what? Good soul. And that's why I use the sandy loam example from the Mississippi Delta. That beautiful, just sandy, wonderful, easy to plow, easy to plant soil in the Mississippi Delta instead of the buckshot mud that everybody hates, right? Unless you're planting rice and you love that. So now the disciples have heard this. They've heard this parable. And as anyone that is really listening, really listening to the Word of God being preached, what generally forms in your mind while the Word is being preached? Questions. Right? Questions. And so that's what they ask. So let's pick up in verse 9. And when the disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they might understand. One of the most confusing, to me, that was one of the most confusing verses in, in, in the New Testament was when he said that. The parable for the purpose of Jesus is saying, the, parable of, of, the purpose of the parable is so they, they hear it, but they don't get it. They see it, but they don't see it. And I'm like, oh, that's mine going to me. Verse 11, now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have been heard, who those who have heard, and the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. And as for what fell among thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit is not mature. As for that in the good soul, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and their fruit in keeping with repentance or with patience. Excuse me. So we have seed germination. And within each parable, 
Within each parable, there is an amount of examination. So, so as he is going through this parable and speaking about these souls, in the hearts of those listening, they are provoked to think this question. Which of these soils, what, am I? That's the purpose of the parable. And he gives you these, these punch lines, these twists with all these, with these wonderful metaphors. Jesus, what do, you, what do you mean by this? And he says, to you, to you, my apostles and disciples, something very special has been given. The secrets of the kingdom of God. Now, wow, does that stop you in your tracks? Stop me in my tracks. The first question I want to ask is what? What are the secrets of the kingdom of God? That's what provokes me in my heart. Well, I just gave you just one text. I could give you ten. But I'll just give you one from Paul's mouth, from Paul's hand. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. I'm just going to read about half of it. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery, same word as secret, was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And here's the mystery. And you've heard this a hundred times. But it doesn't carry the punch with us that it did His original audience. Okay? And, that, and that's, that's not good. It should carry the same punch, but it doesn't. Okay? And he says, this mystery is that the Gentiles, that's us, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That, that's got to be me. I don't know what I'm doing. So how has this inclusion happened? It happened through Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, through belief and faith in Him. It's simple, but so profound. And, and this is what it's kind of like. It's like you suddenly finding out that a group of people that you have learned to hate are included in your inheritance. Think about that. A group of people that you hate that you have been trained and learned to hate throughout your lifetime, now are suddenly going to get a portion of your inheritance. How would you feel about that? I want to get my inheritance. Ugh. Right? Well, that's exactly what a lot of the Jews thought when Jesus came talking about the Gentiles being included and Paul talking about the Gentiles being included. So how has this inclusion happened? Through Jesus Christ. So the mystery is, the secret of the kingdom that has been given, is that those outside the covenant people of God can now be included in salvation through faith in Christ. That's what the whole Bible is about. Okay? About what Jesus has done in, I mean, what God has done in Christ for all people of earth that will hear the truth and believe the Jew first and then the who? Gentiles. If you don't know the whole counsel of God, if you don't know the Old Testament and you haven't studied the Word of God on a regular basis, it doesn't have the punch when you hear that because you just don't, you just don't get it. What connectivity promise of Abraham? I don't understand the mystery that wasn't revealed. I, I don't understand all that. Well, well this, this was huge. Jesus went to the cross. He died for this reality. 
to unify the people of earth in him. The, the, the curse of the Tower of Babel being reversed through Christ and the gospel. All people being united in Jesus. That's what this is about. That's the mystery. But for others, he says, they are in parables. They don't get the mystery. They don't get the secret because it's in parables. He says, so seeing that they may not see and hearing that they may not understand. Man, that sounds harsh. Can you amen it? I mean, I, mean I read that and it just confounds me. But this is the deal. And you need to listen very carefully. We don't like the J word, right? What's the J word? Judgment. Judgment. We don't like that. We don't like the J word. Christ speaks of the judgment of God of those who do not believe God's word. This citation is taken from the call of Isaiah chapter 6. And it's, very, it's this very troubling call on Isaiah's life where God basically tells Isaiah that he is going to be called to preach judgment on to the people of Israel, northern kingdom and southern kingdom, and that he is to continue to preach judgment and preach judgment until the northern kingdom is destroyed and the southern kingdom is destroyed. And God tells him that right out of the shoe. Send me, God. How long do I do this? Until the land's laid in waste and uninhabited. Until these pagan Gentile nations come and completely destroy both nations. And Jesus uses Isaiah chapter 6 in his gospel to try to awaken them to the reality of who he is. So as Jesus spoke those words, the Jews... Get this now. The Jews knew exactly what he was talking about. They remembered Isaiah's call and the destruction of their nation and how their people were sent into exile. And they knew why they had been destroyed because the prophets had told them how many times? Over and over and over and over and over. Turn back from your sin. Come back to covenant with God or he will destroy our nation. Over and over and over. I mean, you don't forget. A people does not forget the destruction of your home and the murder of your people during a time of utter domination by a foreign brutal military power all the while the prophets are screaming at you to change your ways. You don't forget that. So they knew exactly what you're talking about. So Jesus' message here and the inclusion of this in the parable of the sower would have been deeply convicting to them. If you reject me as Messiah, you stand to lose far more than just your country. You forfeit what? Salvation. Do you remember the days of Isaiah when he preached the same message? This is the same message with much more dire consequences is what Jesus is saying. So with that, he goes into the parable. So the closed heart. The seed, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God, the ones along the path of those who have, have heard, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So the seed is the word of God, and the purpose of the word of God is to be planted, to germinate, to take root, to grow, mature, and then yield more seed. But that's not what happens. What happens with the, with the heart soul? It falls on the ground, and it's trampled. It's trampled underfoot. And then the birds come and they eat it. And Jesus says that the birds are Satan. 
and his legions. And he comes and takes the truth from them so that they cannot be saved. So they hear it, they hear the word, but it gets deflected like a bullet off a bulletproof vest, like Wonder Woman with those bracelets, right? Y'all grew up watching Wonder Woman with those bracelets? It's like the, the gospel, the gospel just hits and, and, it, and, it, and it doesn't register, it doesn't go in. And, and, and it comes and takes, takes it from their, their hearts. You know, I used to play a game with, with people sometimes because the game was played with me back years ago. I was at the first Baptist Greenville and a guy came up that I really respect and love, preacher over me. He preached a message and it was great. And I walked up to him and I said, man, that was a fantastic message and he didn't miss a beat. He said, really, what was it about? <laughs> Jesus, Lamb of God. <laughs> he just kind of rolled his eyes back. He said, not a bad recovery. <laughs> not a bad recovery at all. But ever since that moment, I mean, I think God really used that. There's no reason why I should still remember that. But I think God used that to convict my mind that when I come in this place and I sit down to hear preaching, I don't care who's behind this pulpit preaching the gospel, I listen and I pay attention because I don't want Satan coming and taking the truth away. We are here to learn. We are here to grow. We are here to hear the gospel and pay attention. I mean, can you remember from one week to the next what is preached Wait, can you remember from one week to the next when he's taught in your Sunday school classes? Or you go in there, sit down like a zombie, just count the minutes to buy, and you go to eat lunch? Are you hard soul? Does the devil come and take it away? Because it's spiritual warfare every week. We think we're coming into a comfortable building to take it easy and just hang out and watch a performance. Well, nothing can be further from the truth. What goes on here is spiritual warfare. And it involves everything that goes on in your life. Amen? Your marriage, your kids, your job, your involvement in ministry, driving to work every day in Middle Tennessee. Can I get a witness? But specifically, when you come to your local church and worship and hear preaching, the enemy and his legions are present and ready to snatch every bit of truth they can away from you or twist the truth, twist it so you, so you don't hear it correctly and you stay confused. That's what he does. Sometimes passages that we don't understand or don't agree with erodes our faith and strength in the Bible and the church. And, and we're about to address many of those after we've studied the Bible for two years. Hopefully you have some of those questions, this hard question series we're about to go into next week. We're going to take, we're going to take all your questions. We're going to dive into that word. We're going to dive into those, into those, into those hard questions that sometimes can turn your heart into hard soul. We're going to open those up and try to give you explanations of what the Bible really teaches about some of the hardest questions you've got. Now, I'm going to lead you up. We're probably not going to be able to give you a clear answer on everything because there are things that scholars have wrestled with for hundreds of years. And we still don't have a crystal clear answer. Like, when is Jesus coming back, right? We don't know. We're not supposed to know. Jesus tells us to not, to not, to not even really... Be obsessed about that to do ministry, but we anticipate and we're urgent with what we do because we know it's coming. Places where you are weak in knowledge and belief is where Satan will sow doubt. If you don't believe in a created order, if you don't believe in a created order, you won't see the need for the order in your home. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, this garbage that, that, that they're teaching our young people about blurring the lines of gender. I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, if you can blur that line early enough in 
their lives. It will affect the way they view humanity and God for the rest of their lives. And that will make their heart hard for the gospel. And we have got to correct that as the church of Jesus Christ. No matter how, how, how conflicted it is, or no matter how persecuted we get, we've got to speak the truth in that area, period. 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 So spiritual warfare, don't lose sight of this. Spiritual warfare started in the Garden of Eden as far as we're concerned at the creation of the world, the creation of humanity. That's where it started. There was spiritual warfare in the cosmos before that. I'm not saying that. But as far as we're concerned, that's where it started. And it started with Satan sowing into Eve's mind, did God really say? That's spiritual warfare. Did God really say that? Yes, he did. And the Bible says he did. And that's where we stand. Standing on the promises of God. Next is the emotional and the shallow, or what I like to call the hyped up heart. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they heard the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe it for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. Now hear me say this, emotion Emotion is not all bad. Can you amen that? I mean, I am being emotional up here today. Have you seen that? Okay? Emotion is not a bad thing. And God, I believe, can use emotion in, in, in tandem with the truth of His Word and the conviction of the Holy Spirit to bring you to new birth. But we also can't put all of our knowledge and our responses based on emotion. There must be truth. There must be knowledge. That we cannot do everything based on how we what? Feel. Say it louder. We don't base everything we do and everything we believe on our feelings. If that were the fact, I'd be in jail because I'd have killed some people over the past few years. <laughs> I mean, I'm dead serious with you. You're going to sit there and tell me you ain't thought about killing somebody? Sure we do. Sure we do. We get mad. And we feel like we're unjustifiably treated about something. We think, man, if I could just, nobody was looking. And then you realize, wait a minute, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. I can't think this way. This is wrong. And then we repent over that and we don't do it. That's the life of a genuine Christian. We have these carnal, sinful thoughts. The Holy Spirit and the Word of God and convicts us away from them. It's what God does. So this emotional, hyped up heart. And I'm going to tell you, I do believe that this is the one that describes 80% of the people that join the Adventist Baptist Church. I do. And I know that's harsh. Okay, but, but I'm, not, I'm not speaking to you from a vacuum. I'm speaking to you from somebody that has walked in the shoes of a pastor a caring pastor for going on 22 years. And I'm telling you that it happens week in and week out, which is one of the reasons why we try to be so thorough in bringing people into membership at this church. I want them to understand who we are. I want them to understand what the Bible says. I want them to understand all the principles of what we believe before they walk through those doors and before we present them as voting member of this church. Because if they don't understand all that, and then they begin to hear things in the Bible that they've never heard before. They're like, well, I don't believe that. Then they're going to walk out of those doors, suddenly fall away, never come back, and we're going to wonder, what happened to so-and-so? Where are they going? Why haven't they been back? Well, you know, they don't like pastors preaching. That's why they left, you know. That's just an easy, that's, I'm an easy target. Amen? 
but I don't care. I'm going to keep preaching it like it's written. And I'm going to trust God to do the rest, just like that scripture said plain read earlier. God's the one that does the growing. We sow the seed, we do the water, He brings the growth. So this emotional, shallow, hyped up heart. This heart responds and responds big time. Receive it with joy. Everyone is all excited. We post pictures. We tell everybody the news. We shout to the heavens. All the sensationalism, big talking, big dreaming, wonderful. But where are they two months later? Where are they six months later? Where are they one year later? Where are they five years later? How do they respond when you call and check on them? When you see them in public, do they run and hide from you? That is the emotional, shallow heart. And it is crushing to me to believe that. So is this real? Is this person's move toward God? Is this real? Or is it just a bunch of mouthing off celebration and showmanship with no delivery and no commitment? Especially when hard times come. Because I'm going to tell you, brothers and sisters, if you are truly a Christian and you're walking a walk with God, hard times are going to come. God is going to test you in ways that you have never dreamed possible. And you're going to go, why God? Why me? You ever been there? And he's going to shout back at from the heavens, because I love you. And you're going to go, well, that's not the love I've learned about. Right? Because we don't understand sacrificial, disciplining love. All we understand is erotic, sexual love. That's all we understand. But that's the shallow, hyped up heart. So let's go to the chasing heart. We're almost done. I call this the chasing heart. I, I just, I, I've grappled with this for years, and I, I, believe that this is, I believe this is right. You could call it other things. You could call it the distracted heart, or, or you could, you know, choose another word that's in the same ballpark. But what, what, what basically this is is someone who has professed in Jesus. They say they love Him, and they say that they're that they're that He's their Savior. But they chase Him the least out of everything else in their life. You know what I mean? Hardly ever in church. Hardly ever in church. You know, breeze in, breeze out. Definitely not Wednesday night Bible study. Oh man, that's for religious freaks. I don't do that. Sunday school class, maybe. If it's socially acceptable, everybody's the same age I am, and I kind of like it. The teacher, you know, is kind of good. Maybe I'll go, maybe I won't. Because I've got better things to do. I've got traveling I've got to do. I've got hunting I've got to do. I've got fishing I've got to do. I've got an antique Jeep I've got to drive to Florida and get. You feel me? That's me condemning myself because I deal with this as well. I believe that America probably has more Christians choked by thorns than probably any culture on earth. Because the prosperity of this nation, it's, it's, for the most part, it's pretty easy. For the most part, it's pretty easy. I mean, the government gave us how many thousands of dollars in 2020? I mean, our economy right now, I believe, is propped up on those dollars. 
And I think very soon, in the very near future, I think we may see something. I don't know what. But I mean, God's not I'm not afraid. I'm just saying that, that our country lends itself for Christians to fall into this trap. And, and Matthew, Matthew actually says it a little bit better than Luke does. He says, um, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Very interesting that a tax collector would have that kind of perspective. Can you imagine that? Matthew added those, Matthew's perspective gave us that. The deceitfulness of riches showed the word and it proves unfruitful. Nobody would have known better than that than a Levite. Than a Jew turned traitor, turned tax collector. He lived it, Jesus called him out of it. And that's from his perspective. Wealth can be deceitful. And the primary way it deceives is it makes you think that you made it all. Amen? I'm powerful. Just like Nebuchadnezzar stood up there and looked over in his kingdom and said, What? I've done all this. What did God do to him? Made him a beast to put him in the field for years. You ain't done nothing. God's done it for you and through you. And my advice to you, if you are in that realm of being very well financially, financially well off, seek ye first his kingdom and all these things shall be added unto you. For much that is given, much is what? Expected. Exactly. Put His kingdom first. One more passage. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and what? Money. Matthew, sure. The chasing heart. The chasing heart. So are you... Do we have a, a hyping heart or an emotional heart? Do we have a, a hard heart or, or a rocky heart or a, or a, or a, a chasing heart? Where, where, as, as you hear these words, as I hear these words today, because it's very, very odd. We are sowers, are we not? We're supposed to go out and sow the seed, but at the same time, we're also what? We're also soil. As I have studied this text through the years, do you know what I have seen out of my own life? I have seen me somewhat experience all these soils. I definitely was hard. I was definitely hard before I came to Christ. I heard the gospel probably 500 times when I grew up in church. Never received it. Never committed to it. Satan came swept it away. And I know that I've been rocky. I know at one time I walked the aisle and, and received it with joy and got baptized. But I'm going to tell you what, the next several years of my life look nothing like professing Christian. Nothing. I don't believe I was saved. I think I was lost as a goose. I had no root. And a death and no persecution came on me. I, mean, I was just out there and gone. Choked with thorns. I know for a fact, at times I've been choked by thorns. I think all of us have. All of us have. It's how long you're going to let it choke you. Right? How long you're going to let it choke you. Because God loves you and He's going to discipline you to see it. And when He disciplines you to see it, you have a choice. You can either back off and move forward with God or continue to be consumed and withered by the world. And I don't think we want to be withered by the world. The world is too crazy. We need to be strong as we possibly can be as believers for where we're headed. Amen? And I mean that in two ways. Number one, facing God in judgment. Number two, this crazy world. I mean, who knows where we're headed over the next several months? I mean, I mean, I mean, who knows? And then finally, last one, I call this the producing heart. 
the producing heart. As for that in good soul, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Now what's interesting, I want to put you back up and we'll close with this. I want to show you something. If you if you'll I've been standing in one book for a while, probably gets on some of y'all's nerves. Okay? I hope you're beginning to get over that. Amen. After three years of it. Amen. Okay. But if you will truly get in your Bibles and read from week to week, you will begin to see things connect in the text. And you will be able to do what Paul says in Romans 12, be able to test and discern what God's perfect and pleasing will is in your life. Okay? It doesn't mean you're not going to make mistakes. It means that you'll minimize a lot of it and you'll probably minimize the sins in which you get entangled because you're, you're, you're in the fellowship of the Spirit you're following God. But Jesus said this at the end of chapter 6, at the end of the Sermon on the Plain, He said this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When a flood came, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them, hard soul, rocky ground, shook with thorns, is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was what? Great. I mean, God so deeply cares about you and about me that He has put His will in a book that we have 24-hour, seven-day-a-week access to. Why would we seek counsel anywhere else? What is the soul of your heart today? What is it? That's what Christ is asking when He preaches this, this parable. And that is part of the evangelistic stress He puts you under. Stress and evangelism? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. You are being born, you are being taken from the kingdom of darkness to the, to the kingdom of His beloved Son. How many of y'all have babies in here? Was it painful? Yeah. There's some stress involved in evangelism. There's some difficulty involved in evangelism. There is some heart examination that happens in evangelism. There's some heart examination that happens in discipleship. None of us, even Paul, none of us are a completed work. Every single one of us. Every single one of us is, is in the sanctifying process at some point. And we've got to have help. We've got to stay in the Word of God. We've got to have brothers and sisters in Christ walking with us. All of that. All of that is a process. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for leading me to this passage so many years ago. And helping me to be willing to examine my own life with it. Father, I pray that you help all of us to examine our lives with it. And not only to examine our lives with it, Lord, but to make changes based on what we see. 
Because your word's very clear. If we examine our lives with it and we don't make changes based on what we find, then we're self-deceived. And we don't want to be self-deceived. We want to be walking in the light that you've given us. We want to be in active fellowship with you and making decisions that glorify you. Lord, we're never going to be perfect. Nobody's asking for perfection in this life. You certainly aren't. You know it's not possible. You're going to send your son, Jesus Christ. But we do. We have been given this analytical tool by you, Lord, to look at our lives, to look at the lives of others and see where are we? Where are we in this, in these categories of souls? Are we good? Are we choked? Are we rocky? Or is our heart just impenetrable and hard? Father, that is how we begin today. With that question that may, may echo in our minds as we leave this place. And Lord, we pray if there's anyone here today that possibly through the preaching of the Word of God, your conviction of their heart, they believe that, that they are a good soul and they want to commit today to produce a harvest for Father, I pray, I pray that you would move them from darkness to light. Through the blood, love, and spirit of your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord, we, we pray all of this. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.